Hello, I'm your reader, Dale Finnegan, and it's normally time to read today's obituaries from the Des Moines Register for today, May 2nd, but there are none today, so I will go ahead and move on to the sports section of the Register. The big headline on this page, Banking on ISU Football, and it's a column by Randy Peterson. The subtitle, Ames counts on Cyclones for major revenue boost each fall. And here's the story. As some Iowa communities gradually are starting to open again, there's still considerable curiosity about what it could mean for college football. Will students return to campus? Will fans be allowed into games? Will games even occur? Those questions and more will linger for a while as leaders try to navigate the coronavirus-ravaged world in which we live. There are no answers, just speculative opinions. There won't be temporary solutions for a few months, but there's an energy there that's hard to emulate, said Dan Culhane, president of the Ames Chamber of Commerce. If we can have a football season, that would not only be tremendous for the community, but also for our businesses. Our businesses depend on football weekends. Iowa State stands to lose financially, too. The financial impact on Iowa State University will be unprecedented. Iowa State has seven home football games this season, starting September 5th against South Dakota at Jack Trice Stadium. Culhane estimated a weekend football game to be worth $8.9 million to the Ames area economy. That's almost $63 million that will be spent this season at Ames restaurants, hotels, and other places football visitors frequent during game weekends. We hope they they come back if it's safe for that to happen, Culhane said. That's among the great unknowns right now whether fans will even be allowed to attend games. That could be very drastic, said Culhane, who emphasized several times during our interview that health and safety comes before all else. Several years ago, when Iowa State and Kansas State did the football game in Kansas City, that caused a lot of consternation in our business community. It was exciting. It was a lot of fun. Our businesses bank on seven football Saturdays a year. You take one Saturday away, and we notice that. Culhane watches as many of Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds' news conferences as he can. He was intrigued earlier this week when Reynolds announced the gradual opening of 77 Iowa counties. One was Story, where Ames and Iowa State are located. I know there are two sides to every decision that is made, but when I heard that, I felt some sense of relief for a lot of our businesses. Culhane said, Our restaurants are doing curbside and carryout, but it's not the same as having people in dining rooms. Late Tuesday afternoon, Winterstein sent staff and faculty her guidelines for reopening the university and conducting a 2020 fall football season. There was a level of reassurance when President Winterstein came out and said her hope would be for students to be back, Culhane said. I think people will be mindful and thoughtful going forward. Businesses make money when school is in session. There's an excitement and vibrancy and enthusiasm when August 1st hits. Students back in town. People love that. 
But again, it must be done in safe way. That's what's important. And here's Chad Lysakow's story from the page. Ankeny's Brecht picks Iowa over Iowa State. Iowa's football recruiting rampage is continuing, with two-sport Ankeny star Brody Brecht on Friday making public his verbal commitment to the Hawkeyes. Brecht has been on the Hawkeyes' radar for a while and affirmed his potential with a 4.45-second dash for 40 yards this spring. That's blazing for an athlete who checks in at six foot four, two hundred pounds. Added a big time weapon to the Hawkeye arsenal, Hawkeye assistant coach Jay Neiman, who leads Iowa State's in-state, excuse me, Iowa's in-state recruiting efforts, tweeted Friday without naming Brecht. This one is a game changer. Twenty twenty one class is on fire. End quote. Brecht is committed number 14, a commitment number 14, in Iowa's Roaring 2021 class, which ranked 6th nationally as of Friday afternoon, according to 247 Sports and Rivals. He is the 5th pledge to Iowa over the past 9 days, and 7th since the COVID-19 pandemic halted sports as we know it. Yet the Hawkeyes continue to power ahead with recruiting momentum. Brecht has expressed a desire to play both football and baseball in college, which surely helped his decision as he weighed his final two choices. Iowa State, which doesn't have a baseball team, was the runner-up. In football, Brecht amassed 35 catches for 796 yards last season for the Hawks. In baseball, he projects as a college pitcher with a 90-mile-per-hour fastball. The Register ranks Brecht as the state's number six overall football prospect. Rivals and 247 Sports each rate him with three stars. He projects in football as a more rangy X receiver, the same position senior-to-be Brandon Smith plays for Iowa. They produce NFL prospects after NFL prospect, Brecht said in a late March interview with the Register, and they're really good at developing their players in the weight room. Brecht is the second wideout collected by Iowa in a span of four days. Projected slot receiver Arland Bruce IV of Olathe, Kansas, committed Tuesday. The Hawkeyes may take one more receiver yet in their 2021 class. And here's a list of Iowa's 2021 recruiting class with um, their sizes according to Rivals.com. D.E. Jeff Bowie, 6'5", 242 pounds, from West Branch. W.R. Brody Brecht, 6'4", 200 pounds, from Ankeny. W.R. Arland Bruce IV, 5'10", 185, from Olathe, Kansas. O.L. Connor Colby, 6'6", 275 pounds, Cedar Rapids. O.L. David Davidkoff, 6'6", 290, Winnetka, Illinois. Safety, Cooper DeGene, 6'2", 198 pounds, from Ida Grove. O.L. Jennings Dunker, 6'5", 280, from Lena, Illinois. L.B. Jaden Harrell, 6'2", 220 pounds, from Urbandale. D.T. Griffin Little, 6'3", 275, from Bettendorf. 
D.E. Max Llewellyn, 6 foot 5, 230 pounds, from Urbandale. C.B. Jordan Oladukun, 5'11", 180 pounds, from Tampa, Florida. O.L. Bo Stevens, 6'6", 305 pounds, from Blue Springs, Missouri. L.B. Justin Sullivan, 6'2", 225 pounds, from Eden Prairie, Minnesota. And finally, L.B. Zach Twett, 6'3", 216 pounds, from Story City. Davenport 6'7", Lineman's Stock, on rise after big-time college offers. This third article on the front page of the sports section comes from Matthew Bain of The Register. In recruiting, sometimes it just takes one offer to open the floodgates. And, well, the floodgates are open in Davenport for Tyler Merrow, a six foot seven offensive lineman out of Davenport Assumption. After making an initial Power 5 splash with a Louisville offer last November, Morrow had settled in a groove as a high-end Group of 5 FCS Ivy League prospect. From January to the start of April, he piled up 15 offers from programs such as Western Michigan, Northern Illinois, Northern Iowa, Illinois State, Harvard, and Yale. Then, Syracuse became his second Power 5 offer on April 3rd. Two weeks later, Wake Forest offered. One week later, on April 24th, Iowa State offered. And in a blitz of messages and phone calls since then, Kansas State, UCLA, Oregon, Duke, Nebraska, and Illinois have all offered. No, I didn't, Morrow told the Register this week when asked if he saw this rush of Power 5 offers coming. I'd just kind of just been enjoying what I had, all the opportunities I had. Then all of a sudden I'm getting more opportunities. Morrow now has 30 total offers, including 10 from, 10 from Power 5s. In addition, Morrow said he's receiving interest from Iowa, Stanford, Cal, Minnesota, and Indiana. He has taken unofficial visits to Iowa, Iowa State, Wisconsin, Nebraska, Louisville, South Dakota State, Notre Dame, Minnesota, and Northern Illinois. Morrow's recruiting search isn't a shock. He had been seen as a prospect on the Power 5 fringe for some time now. Since starting on varsity as a sophomore, Morrow oozed potential thanks to his height, wingspan, and flexibility. He's also a multi-sport athlete who competes in track and field, basketball, and baseball. Potential alone, however, rarely lands a Power 5 offer. Coaches at those programs need to see potential paired with consistent production on the football field. For some kids, film is enough to demonstrate that. For others, coaches need to see them in person. With the coronavirus delaying any in-person evaluations for the foreseeable future, film is the only current option. And coaches who may have wanted to wait to see Morrow and his rare measurables in person no longer have that option. 247 Sports Midwest recruiting analyst Alan True thinks Morrow is a legitimate Power 5 prospect, even if COVID-19 hadn't altered how teams evaluate prospects. 
247 Sports currently gives Morrow three stars and ranks him the number 82 offensive tackle in 2021. Really, all the boxes are checked there, True said. And it's just hard to find tackle bodies and tackle frames. So when you have that six foot seven and you have the length and then you add in all the other qualities, he's a pretty obvious one. You look at him and you look at those workout clips and you read that he's 256 pounds and he really doesn't even look like that. So there's plenty of room there for him to still grow and there's plenty of room for him to improve. And you've also seen that the kid is working all the time. You feel pretty good that the kid is going to reach his ceiling based on his intelligent, his intelligence and his work ethic too. Davenport Assumption head coach Wade King said he's been getting lots of calls from area codes he doesn't recognize lately. All coaches looking to learn more about Morrow. King doesn't know exactly what triggered this recent string of Power 5 offers, but he's glad coaches are paying attention. He's got a couple of things you can't teach, and the big one is he's six foot seven. King said. I think a lot of the coaches have been watching film. Six foot seven guys that can move don't stay a secret for long. I get asked to describe him a lot from the coaches, and I say, this guy's going to sound too good to be true, but it's not. He's real, a real throwback, coach pleaser, that kind of kid. Morrow had planned to take unofficial visits just about every weekend he could this spring and summer. With the coronavirus likely making that impossible, Morrow still hopes to wait and see how his recruitment continues to unfold this summer before hopefully taking visits in the fall and making a decision by the end of the football season. He said he doesn't currently have a preference to stay in-state or go out-of-state. I'm 100% open to everything, Morrow said. I'm considering all the options equally, just trying to do as much research as possible and build relationships with coaches so when the time comes, I can make an, an informed decision. Although it just offered last month, Iowa State has been recruiting Morrow since his sophomore year. He camped with the Cyclones last summer and visited Ames twice this fall and once in March for a junior day. His father attended Iowa State. That was really special, Morrow said, of his Cyclones offer. Meanwhile, his mother's side of the family is full of Hawkeyes. Iowa has also had its eyes on Morrow for quite some time. He unofficially visited Iowa City three times this fall and got on campus in February of 2019 for a junior day. The Hawkeyes currently have offers out to four offensive linemen and are look, likely looking to add one more recruit at that position. At this point, Iowa hasn't offered Morrow, and he said Iowa coaches have told him they'd like to evaluate him again in person. Since there's extra time, I'll go ahead and read a couple of uh, more articles about sports and what's upcoming with uh, the coronavirus changes. NBA will not rush decision on season, and this article is written by Jeff Zilgit, a columnist for the USA Today. Whether optimistic, pessimistic, or realistic about the NBA finishing the, the 2019-20 season, the league, even at the highest level, doesn't know what will happen and isn't making firm plans. 
Maybe you are optimistic after hearing NBA owners Mark Cuban of the Dallas Mavericks and Mark Lassery of the Milwaukee Bucks express optimism on CNN and CNBC that the league will resume the season. Maybe you are pessimistic after reading a CNBC report that some team executives are calling for NBA Commissioner Adam Silver to cancel the season. Or maybe you're a realist who can conceptualize playing later in the summer but understands the massive and perhaps insurmountable obstacles required to make that happen. People want answers. I get it. For many reasons, for many people, this time with coronavirus has been difficult. Millions of basketball fans would love to see the NBA resume its season. The idea of Giannis Antetokounmpo and the Milwaukee Bucks versus LeBron James and the Los Angeles Lakers in the NBA Finals would be a wonderful way to bring some joy. Whether the NBA is back will play out over the next few months, but one thing is for certain in the face of a CNBC report that said some unnamed team executives and agents are calling for the league to cancel the 2019-20 season. That's not going to happen. Not now. It's an off-base suggestion for several reasons. None more important than the league isn't in a position to make that call. Silver said on April 17th in a conference call with reporters, All I can say is we're still at a point where we don't have enough information to make a decision. And that comment, according to a person familiar with the situation, still stands. The person requested anonymity because of the sensitive nature of the situation. The CNBC story prompted LeBron James to respond via Twitter. Nobody I know saying anything like that. As soon as it's safe, we could like to finish our season. I'm ready and our team is ready. Nobody should be canceling anything. End quote. Will there be a push and perhaps even public pressure to resume as the country begins to reopen? Yes, but NBA teams and Silver won't be swayed by that if they continue to operate under the overriding premise that player, staff, and fan health and safety come first. Silver is rational even as he considers significant financial ramifications for many people. Obviously, there's a huge void right now, and we're all trying to figure out how this story ends and what to do next, said NBA agent Bernie Lee, who represents Jimmy Butler. The smartest thing we can do is trust the leadership, shut up, and get the hell out of the way. The next mistake of any kind the leadership of the NBA and NBPA make will be the first one, so they've earned some trust and goodwill. Will they possibly have to sit down and make a decision? Yes. Are we there yet? No. They're going to factor all the information and make a pragmatic choice. Each time a bit of encouraging news comes up, the NBA is looking at reopening practice facilities or that Disney World could serve as a bubble site to finish the season or any or NBA owners saying they are cautiously optimistic about finishing the season, a tiny bit of hope emerges. But that hope is also met with gloom. One seasoned front office team executive expressed his doubt the season will resume 
and another longtime NBA coach plugged into his team's upper management said the NBA is looking at ways to salvage a majority of the 2020 to 2021 season. Both people requested anonymity so that they could speak openly about the sensitive nature of the topic. All you have to do is listen to Silver's press conference two weeks ago. While he indicated he is not signaling whether there will be a conclusion to the season, he listed the many challenges the league faces. Even opening up the practice facilities for no more than four players at a time requires a massive amount of safety and health precautions and cleaning. Now just multiply that times 12 players on 16 playoff teams and add the necessary support staff needed to play a game. Is there enough testing? Can you successfully quarantine players, coaches, referees, and essential game day staff? What happens if a player tests positive? Even the intriguing idea of a playing games at so-called bubble site, such as Disney World in Orlando or at hotels in Las Vegas, is premature right now, said the person familiar with the situation. The NBA is doing more listening than anything to government officials, infectious disease experts, internal and external health officials. There's still so much experts don't know about the virus, and new details emerge regularly. No concrete decisions are being made. It remains a learn-and-see situation for the NBA. And here is an article from Beth Harris of the Associated Press about horse racing. Triple crown season unlike any other. This promises to be a triple crown season like no other. Instead of kicking off the chase this weekend with the Kentucky Derby, the storied race may end up capping the trio of races on Labor Day weekend. Instead of three-year-old Colts saving the longest race for last, maybe they begin in New York with a shortened Belmont Stakes in late May or June. Or perhaps the Preakness Stakes at Pimlico will be run on a sweltering July afternoon. It could happen. All scenarios are on the table, with talks ongoing among the host tracks and broadcaster NBC. Government and public health officials weighing in on health and safety concerns involving the coronavirus pandemic figure heavily, too. The heavyweight of the group, Churchill Downs, announced in March it was moving the Derby to September 5th because of the coronavirus that has halted live racing at some major tracks. It's the first time since 1945, when it was run in June, that the Derby won't go off on the first Saturday in May. And if it comes to it, the track has no problem bringing up the rear in the Triple Crown Series. We're totally fine with it, said Darren Rogers, Senior Director of Communications for Churchill Downs. Especially if the same horse wins the first two legs to set up a Triple Crown bid when the Derby rolls around. However it shakes down, this is a very unique year, Rogers said. We've all had to make some very difficult but necessary decisions. That's not unique to Churchill. That's us as a society in general. There is precedent for the Derby, Preakness, and Belmont to be held out of order. Prior to 1931, the Preakness was run before the Derby 11 times. 
1917 and 1922, the Derby and Preakness were run on the same day in May. Starting in 1930, the term Triple Crown became popular in referring to the three races, and since 1931, the Derby and Preakness and Belmont have been run in that order. Maryland Jockey Club and New York Racing Association have yet to announce new dates for the Preakness and Belmont. The 1 and 3 sixteenths mile Preakness is scheduled for May 16th, which would have been two weeks after the 1 and 1 quarter mile Derby's original Saturday date. The 1 and a half mile Belmont is set for June 6th, its usual spot five weeks after the Derby's original date. If you go from a mile and a half and start dropping back, it's going to change a lot, said trainer D. Wayne Lucas, winner of 14 Triple Crown races. It'll change how you train. It'll change the type of horse that will end up in the Derby. It'll be a very, very significant change. There also is the prospect of not having over 150,000 behatted, well-dressed, mint julep-sipping fans at the Derby, the raucous infield crowd at the Preakness, or a busy grandstand at the Belmont. NYRA is seeking to restore live racing now at Belmont Park and later Saratoga, whose meet opens in July. Its plans include no spectators, additional health and safety precautions, and only essential employees at the track. Churchill Downs has received clearance to resume live racing without fans on May 16th. The pandemic has also upended the road to the Kentucky Derby, creating challenges for the series of prep races that determines who is in the race. Points are awarded to the top four finishers, and the top 18 finishers on the leaderboard earn spots in the starting gate for the Derby. Two spots are reserved for the top points earners from Europe and Japan. A revised schedule of prep races isn't expected until the Preakness and Belmont dates are reset and live racing returns in Maryland, New York, and California. Churchill Downs has said horses that earned points before the remaining schedule was thrown into disarray by the pandemic will keep them. Florida Derby winner Tis the Law leads the standings with 122 points. Reorganizing the prep races and the Triple Crown series will require cooperation among tracks that are used to going their own way in a sport lacking centralized oversight. We've had conversations with a number of racetracks about potentially hosting a Road to the Kentucky Derby qualifying race, Rogers said. As soon as the races are finalized and racetracks are back up and running, we'll make that announcement. It's one that owners and trainers anxiously await. It's hard when you have horses ready to run and you don't have a game plan on where to run them, said Liz Crow, a racing manager and bloodstock agent. If the Triple Crown begins with the Derby in September, trainers may decide to rest their top contenders. However, sticking with the traditional timing of the series would mean it ends just a month before the Breeders' Cup, set for November 6th and 7th at Keeneland. That would leave horses little time to regroup for the lucrative world championships. Some horses could benefit from the changes, others hurt by it. 
The Triple Crown is restricted to three-year-olds, giving horses only one chance to run in it. There is going to be some horses that go by the wayside, trainer Mark Cassie said. Then there's going to be some coming on that, if we had ran the Derby the first Saturday in May, they would have never had any chance. However it plays out, the Derby's traditional May Day won't pass unnoticed. Churchill Downs and NBC will mark the occasion with three hours of coverage on Saturday, including a re-airing of American Pharaoh's Derby win in 2015, which launched the cult on a path to becoming the first Triple Crown winner in 37 years. Also on tap is the track's first virtual horse race between the 13 past Triple Crown winners, from Sir Barton in 1919 to Justify in 2018, with Larry Kalmus calling the race. It's so crazy, said Jack Wolf of Starlight Racing, co-owner of Derby contender Charlatan. Nobody really knows where we stand with all this. Turning to the Iowa Life section of the Des Moines Register now, the front of the section is mostly a photo composite. There is a headline, Photos Give Glimpse of Springtime in Iowa, at the very center of the page. Above that is a photograph of the Iowa State University Campanile. So you can see the tower in the background. It takes up about half of the picture. In the foreground are some trees that are just beginning to show green and white blooms. The Campanile is the bell tower with uh, the clock on four sides of the turret. And then at the very top is a gray slate-covered roof that comes to a point. Each corner of that turret has another decorative element um, with a, a pointy top. And then there are the three arched windows um, between the clock and the roof where you can see the bells um, in, inside there. Below that is a photo of a swan, a beautiful white swan with its wing feathers kind of outstretched behind its back. It's swimming on Lake Laverne outside of the Memorial Union on Sunday, April 26th in Ames. You can see the water and the swan's reflection below it in the foreground. And in the background, you can see some green algae. It doesn't look like lily pads yet, but maybe it is. Um, the water is a pretty dark, dark green. And then the lily pads or algae are a lighter green behind the white swan. The third photo is a close-up of a tree in bloom on a quiet Iowa State campus from Sunday, April 26th in Ames. And on that close-up of the branch, you can just see a few inches of the bare branch which ver with very small green buds of leaves just starting to open. The pink flower at the end of the branch is much more open, and it's got about four petals it looks like that are open. It's uh, light pink on the ends and gets darker pink as it goes toward the center of the flower. And it's a very pretty picture. Looking at the page below those pictures, we have a story that's not from Iowa, but how to visit Carlsbad Caverns virtually. And this comes from Adrian Hedden of the USA Today Network um, via New Mexico. You'll have to enjoy the sights and sounds of Carlsbad Caverns from your home for the time being. 
breathtaking rock formations hundreds of feet underground at Carlsbad Caverns National Park in southern New Mexico were closed off to the public, along with national parks across the country, as the National Park Service attempted to stymie the spread of coronavirus by decreasing visitation. Many hiking trails at the park were still open, but with the closure of the visitor center and halt of most park operations, those hoping for a trip to the underground cave system were forced to wait until the virus was contained. But while many people are quarantined in their homes, you can still explore the awe-inspiring forms and natural features of several national parks via their computer screens. The National Park Service launched multiple virtual tours on Google, allowing visitors to quickly shift from the subterranean beauty of the caverns to active volcanoes at Hawaii Volcanoes National Park. Free virtual tours offered also include Kenai Fjords in Alaska, Bryce Canyon in Utah, and Dry Tortugas in Florida. The videos are led by real park rangers who share their expertise along the way. The Caverns Tour is hosted by Ranger Pam Cox as she takes viewers from the natural entrance of the cave deep into the bowels of the cavern in the big room. Visitors can also experience the flight of the bats in and out of the entrance from a first-person perspective. There's so much that we don't know about this place. We don't know how fast it formed or exactly how old it is, Cox said in the introduction. I've worked at parks with mountains and canyons, but in my six years at the caverns, what strikes me most is just how foreign and mysterious this place is. The interactive tour allows visitors to click on various images and videos to explore the cavern's different features and areas. Another virtual tour offered at tourdeforce360.com gives visitors the chance to click through a map of the underground caves, hearing the sounds of the natural environment and marveling at the sights using VR glasses. The park's visitor center, gift shop, restaurant, and bookstore were officially closed on March 21st, as the Park Service fought to follow public health guidelines from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, advising social distancing. Park roads, desert trails, and picnic areas were left open, but ranger-guided tours were also canceled. A date of reopening was not given. The health and safety of our visitors, employees, volunteers, and partners at Carlsbad Caverns National Park is our number one priority, read a news release from the Park Service. I'll turn now to the USA Today weekend edition that came out on Friday and read a couple pieces here that we haven't read yet. Industry was hit hard even before virus pandemic, but the headline is, If malls reopen, will many shoppers return and buy? And this story is written by David P. Willis, Melanie Anzade, and Alexandria Burris. The coronavirus pandemic has cast a pall over the country's shopping malls. Concerns over the spread of COVID-19 has temporarily closed their doors as efforts were put in place to cut down on crowds and enforce social distancing. Shoppers, under government orders, stayed home and away from the mall. 
Experts predict that when the malls do reopen, they will look different than before. More vacancies, more social distancing, and consumers with newfound shopping habits. This is a devastating blow to the shopping mall industry, and certainly there are any number of malls that will probably end up being closed within the next year, said Paco Underhill, retail expert and chief executive of Envirocell, a market and research firm in New York City. I think all of the shopping malls are going to see vacancies in them. Large regional shopping centers were struggling before the pandemic piled on. They were under pressure from customers shopping online, the weakening of big department store anchor draws, such as Macy's, JCPenney, and Sears, as well as the rise of big box stores like Target and outdoor shopping malls and outlet centers. Some have had to remake and reinvent themselves to survive by adding non-retail businesses, such as fitness centers, office and medical uses, and entertainment to their tenant mix. The idea is we have these special experiences in the mall, and that's going to attract consumers in. And once consumers are at the mall, then they will shop at stores, said Petrelli Chatterjee's chairperson and professor in the Department of Marketing at Montclair State University's Feliciano School of Business in New Jersey. And retailers are struggling too. U.S. retailers have already announced a two, announced 2,184 permanent closures this year, most of which were announced before the pandemic began, according to retail analytics from CoreSight Research. Other retailers, including Neiman Marcus and Asena Retail Group, the parent company of Ann Taylor and Lane Bryant, are in distress while they await the chance to reopen their doors. Reuters has reported that Neiman Marcus is on the verge of bankruptcy. And struggling retailers may mean that they can't pay rent to the landlord, the operator of the mall. One of the troubles that people are having is just collecting rents, Underhill said. Nobody is buying clothing now. Nobody's going out to restaurants. Nobody's going to the movies. These are going to be very tough times. The biggest question is, even when governments relax restrictions, what will shoppers do? Are you going to happily go to a regional mall and stroll around with a mask on? Asked James W. Hughes, an economist at Rutgers University in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Are you going to be very hesitant to really be close to other people? Will malls have to filter you in like they filter you into a supermarket? A sign of what's to come may start as early as Friday. That would have been yesterday. Simon Property Group plans to reopen 49 properties between Friday and Monday in Alaska, Arkansas, Georgia, Indiana, Mississippi, Missouri, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Texas, the company said after a document leaked to the media. When shoppers return to their locally owned Simon Property Group mall or outlet, They'll likely find food courts reconfigured with less seating, dividers separating them, and available temperature testing via infrared thermometers for free. Other protocols include limiting store hours to allow for overnight cleaning, sanitizing, and disinfecting of high touchpoint areas. 
All shoppers will be encouraged to wear masks or facial coverings and frequently wash and sanitize their hands, the company said. No reusable trays, utensils, and cups will be allowed in food courts. Regular announcements will be made over the audio system at each property to remind shoppers to maintain a safe distance from each other. But will all the stores be back when the malls open? Indiana-based Vera Bradley said it's not reopening its store at the Fashion Mall at Keystone in Indianapolis, should the mall open on Saturday. Macy's said it does not expect to open all stores at once. We look forward to reopening our stores and welcoming back our colleagues and customers, the company said in a statement. As we plan to reopen, we are looking at a number of factors, including state and local government ordinances. Given the existing turmoil in the industry and the unpredictability of business fallout from the coronavirus crisis, trying to anticipate what comes next for malls in the wake of the pandemic is nearly impossible, said Ted Patricus, CEO of the Retail Council of New York State. But the owners and managers who find creative ways to help tenants hang on will likely be the ones to emerge from the ashes, he said. So far, a handful of malls across the country have said publicly that they're requiring stores to continue paying rent on time. For instance, Taubman Centers, which owns the high-end The Mall at Short Hills in New Jersey, advised tenants last month all, quote, will be expected to meet their lease obligations, according to a memo obtained by USA Today. But the company added that it is willing to to talk to each tenant about their respective challenges and help them chart an appropriate course for the future. For the property owners, it's about balancing their own financial obligations to lenders while ensuring the malls don't lose too many tenants. A mall that looks like it's struggling could throw up a red flag for customers and cause them to steer clear. It's all about perception. As the most forward-facing part of the economy, retail and shopping malls are going to be a very interesting intersection of economy recovery and social recovery, Patrickus said. Offering entertainment options outside of retail would be the thing that helps them weather the storm, said Patrickus. Although it's still unclear how entertainment venues will function after reopening, as social distancing measures will likely still be in place. Destiny USA in Syracuse, New York, the largest mall in the state and a destination for travelers from around the region, including Canada, is full of unique entertainment venues and restaurants. Crossgates Commons in the Albany area recently underwent upgrades at its movie theaters and the construction of a hotel and spa on the property. Mall owners are taking different steps to cope with the pandemic. Last month, Unibail Rodamco Westfield, a global operator that runs 36 centers, including Westfield Garden State Plaza in New Jersey, Westfield Sarasota in Florida, and some in airports, became one of the first companies to offer tenants of its U.S. malls relief from the impact of COVID-19 on business, WWD reported. In a letter to tenants, URW wrote, to help alleviate the economic impact of COVID-19. If you need to delay payment of your April rent or recurring charges, 
You may do so for up to 90 days or through July 1. Brian Kingston, the chief executive of Brookfield Property Partners, which owns 122 malls and retail outlets, including the Neshaminy Mall in Bensalem, Pennsylvania, said his company was prepared for a market downturn. A difficult retail operating environment had already led to a large number of bankruptcies in 2019, Kingston said in a March letter to unit holders. In the long run, the high-quality nature of our assets and the prime locations the centers enjoy give us an advantage and will allow us to recover. But this segment of our business will undoubtedly face a challenging year ahead. Prate, the publicly traded Philadelphia company that owns malls including those in Cherry Hill and Vineland, New Jersey, as well as Willow Grove and Plymouth Meeting in Pennsylvania, applied in April for stimulus funding through the federal CARES Act's Paycheck Protection Program. In early April, Preet announced that it had furloughed about 37% of its staff to cut costs, about 41 people in its corporate office, and another 62 employees at properties throughout the country. Preet could not be reached for comment. The coronavirus pandemic also has put the skids on the long-delayed open of a water park and the first wave of stores at the American Dream, the mega-mall built in New Jersey's Meadowlands. Now it's unclear what the future holds for the $5 billion entertainment and retail complex under development by the Triple Five Group, owners of the two largest malls in North America, Mall of America in Bloomington, Minnesota, and West Edmonton Mall in Canada. The developer did not respond to a request for comment. Triple Five is healthy enough that if they want to open American Dream, they probably can. So the question is, do they want to, said Jan Rogers Niffen, a national retail consultant. I don't know. They may just delay the opening, waiting for a more attractive environment, or they may elect to go ahead, open it, and gradually add in what stores they can. They were sort of opening gradually anyway. Craving Chick-fil-A? Get a meal kit to go. This article comes from Coral Murphy of the USA Today. Chick-fil-A will offer make-it-yourself chicken parmesan meal kits starting Monday as more people decide to eat at home amid the COVID-19 pandemic. The fast food chain's meal kits are additions to the regular menu of sandwiches, salads, and other fare. The kits feature pre-measured and pre-cooked ingredients for a meal that can be made in less than 30 minutes. Kits start at $14.99 and serve two adults. The kits come with two seasoned, breaded, and pressure-cooked chicken fillets, marinara sauce, Italian-style cheeses, and creamy garlic and lemon pasta. Customers can choose original chicken, grilled, or spicy fillets. Meal kits are available at participating Chick-fil-A restaurants via the drive-thru, the Chick-fil-A app, DoorDash, Uber Eats, and Grubhub. Chick-fil-A's meal kits come amid the sudden shift from restaurant dining to at-home eating prompted by the pandemic, coupled with panic buying at grocery stores. 
We're thrilled to offer it with great enhancements at participating restaurants nationwide during a time when our guests need convenient mealtime options, said Stuart Tracy, senior culinary lead at Chick-fil-A. The franchise first tested the concept exclusively in Atlanta in 2018. After receiving positive feedback, they decided to kickstart the project. I did try to look real quick to see if the local Chick-fil-A's here in Des Moines were making this available. I think they may be, but I wasn't able to get a concrete answer. So hopefully you can check into that if that's something that interests you. And if you're able to head to Costco soon, you might want to know this. Masks a must as Costco returns to normal. This article from Carol Murphy of the USA Today. Costco is planning to return to something more like a pre-coronavirus normal with one small change. You'll have to wear a mask. Starting Monday, most Costco locations and gas stations will return to regular operating hours, which vary by location, but customers and employees alike will be required to wear face coverings or masks. The requirement does not apply to children under the age of two or to people who are unable to wear a mask or face covering due to a medical condition, according to a Costco statement. In addition, the company updated its special operating hours for members over the age of 60. Select Costco warehouses will be open from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. Monday through Friday for members ages 60 and older and people with disabilities uh, starting Monday. Guests will not be admitted. The use of a mask or face covering should not be seen as a substitute for social distancing, the statement reads. Please continue to observe rules regarding appropriate distancing while on Costco premises. U.S. Costco warehouses are also implementing a two-person limit per membership card to enter the facilities. The El Paso, Texas, and Puerto Rico warehouses are excluded from this policy. Reactions concerning the wholesale giant's new face policy are already sparking outrage on social media. Won't be renewing my membership, reads a post made on Twitter. I will not comply with your mask rule, reads another tweet. Costco also is temporarily allowing priority access to warehouses during all open hours for Costco members who are healthcare workers and first responders, such as police officers, EMTs, and firefighters. So here is a list of the changes that Costco is implementing nationwide. All customers and employees are required to wear masks or other face coverings. Select Costco warehouses will be open from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. Monday through Friday for members ages 60 and older. Member healthcare workers and first responders have priority access to the warehouse during all open hours. The company has implemented limits on certain items to help ensure more members are able to purchase merchandise they want and need. Costco is allowing members to use their own reusable shopping bags as long as they pack the bags themselves, unless this is prohibited by local mandates. Warehouses are not accepting returns on toilet paper, bottled water, sanitizing wipes, paper towels, rice, and disinfecting spray. There will be limited or no service at the hearing aid department, Costco Optical, the floral floral department, and the jewelry department, and these limitations will vary by location.
And at the food court, a limited menu is available. Orders are available only for takeout and seating is not available. Apple updates Face ID for users wearing face masks. This also from Coral Murphy. For iPhone users, using Face ID to unlock their phones was turning into a hassle now that face masks are necessary to perform essential tasks, but Apple will soon fix that problem. On Wednesday, Apple released the developer beta of iOS 13.5 with updates to Face ID and group FaceTime, the company told USA Today iOS 13.5 will be available to the public soon, said Apple. The update simplifies the unlock process for people wearing a medical mask by automatically presenting the passcode field after swiping up from the bottom of the lock screen. The new feature could halt users from removing their masks to unlock their phones. The feature works when authenticating with the App Store, Apple Books, Apple Pay, iTunes, and other apps that support Face ID sign-ins. This will prevent users from repeatedly having to use Face ID to unlock their phones. The update is available for models iPhone X, XS, and 11, including their Plus and Pro versions. In addition to the Face ID update, users who call through group FaceTime don't have to worry about video tiles changing size when a participant speaks thanks to a new feature that lets users control automatic prominence. If a user enables this preference, the tiles still are laid out asymmetrically and a user will need to tap on an individual tile to make it larger. The beta of iOS 13.5 also will contain the first version of its Exposure Notification API for COVID-19 contact tracing. It's time to turn back to the register for Dear Abby. The title of the column today, Bride Chooses Not to Walk Down the Aisle with Dad. The first letter says, Dear Abby, For some reason, my father hates my fiancé, to the point where when I stayed with my fiancé for one day, Dad wouldn't allow me to come home. Dad said many nasty things, but among the more hurtful ones were that he hoped my fiancé would abuse me and that I shouldn't be allowed to get married. He doesn't remember saying them, but I remember well. Only my immediate family and my fiancé's family know the specifics, And whenever I say I would rather have my brother walk me down the aisle, my relatives are all in disbelief. Am I really in the wrong? And this is signed, Misunderstood Bride-to-Be. Abby says, Dear Misunderstood, It is understandable that you would prefer someone else walk you down the aisle. Do what is best for the two of you. Consider it an elopement. The second letter says, Dear Abby, I am an 84-year-old divorced alum from a local college who has developed feelings for a 59-year-old widowed alum from a local university. She works at my former college and visited me a month ago asking for a donation to the college. Since then, she has shown extreme appreciation of my gift via letter, emails, and calls. I'm curious as to how much her feelings are for her success as a fundraiser or if the attraction could be mutual. I would appreciate your opinion. Thank you. And that's signed Unknown Feelings in Virginia. Abby says, Dear Unknown Feelings, 
The age difference may not be an insurmountable problem. At 59, she is old enough to decide whether it's a deal breaker. Invite her out. And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Des Moines Register for Saturday, May 2nd, 2020. You can hear this show again at 6 p.m. and at 1 a.m. Recordings are available on our website, iowaradioreading.org. All material heard on IRIS is intended for the use of Iowans who are print disabled. If you have any questions or comments, give us a call at 515-243-6833. You can also call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa, 1-877-404-4747. Once again, we want you to know that our program schedule has changed so that we can get as much local information to as many listeners as possible. The Fort Dodge Messenger will be read at 7 a.m. Monday through Friday. The Mason City Globe Gazette will be read at 8 a.m. Monday through Friday. Your Des Moines Register will continue to be read from 9 a.m. to noon each day. The Cedar Rapids Gazette will be read at noon, seven days a week. The Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier will be read at 1 p.m., seven days a week. The Dubuque Telegraph Herald will be read at 2 p.m., Monday through Friday. The Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil will be read at 3 p.m., Monday through Friday. The Sioux City Journal will be read at 4 p.m., seven days a week. The Ames Tribune will be read at 5 p.m., Monday through Friday. And the Midweek Shopping Cart will be read each Wednesday at 9 p.m. We will stay with this schedule until further notice. I'm your reader, Dale Finnegan. It's been a pleasure to read for you today. Stay tuned now for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. And thank you for listening to Your Iris, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.